Welcome to the Guardian Mindset Podcast, presented by attorney Eric Daigle. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the next edition of the Guardian Mindset Podcast. Attorney Eric Daigle, happy to have you back here as we set forth and continue on a discussion that we started last episode, specifically about duty of care and something that I've been really focusing on post our 2024 Use of Force Summit. And if you missed it, you really missed it because it was a good event. But as we sit here today, I want to continue the discussion we had last episode. So if you didn't listen to that last episode, you might want to start with that one because a lot of this might not make sense if you don't. But I also want to remind you that our podcast here under the control and command of Kara is sponsored by DLG Learning Center. Hey, listeners, a quick but exciting update from me, your host, and now your guide to advancing in internal affairs. I'm thrilled to announce the upcoming internal affairs course at DLG Learning Center where I'll be leading both standard and advanced courses. If you're eager to sharpen your skills and take a deep dive into the world of internal affairs, these courses are just for you. They're designed to be interactive, informative, and absolutely transformative. Spots are filling up fast, so don't miss out. Sign up today at dlglearningcenter.com. Elevate your career with us. Don't forget to use podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, for $50 off today. Now let's jump back into the Guardian Mindset Podcast. So today the goal is to continue this discussion that has been a hot discussion for me for the past couple of weeks on duty of care. And so this time we're going to transition into a new discussion, which is a, a very important discussion and which takes the duty of care to a whole new level, which is the public duty doctrine and understanding the public duty doctrine. Listen, I'm not going to lie to you very legal. I'm going to do my best to make it as simple as possible with the research uh, done by Adriana here at Daigle Law Group and with the assistance of Kara, we're going to make it as, as simple as possible. But last episode, we talked about duty of care. We talked specifically about the issues associated with moral duty uh, versus legal duty, understanding the duty of care. We talked about suspect versus subject. And the next thing that we're going to get into is going to be the public duty doctrine, or, and which will lead to the duty to act, or what we call state-created danger. So let's dive in a little bit to this, this application. If you remember last episode, we talked about subject versus suspect, and that it's very important for us to start carrying around some Home Depot buckets and identify what belongs in what area. So let's start out by clarifying that again. First, we would have a subject. A subject is non-criminal. In, in, in a service call where there is no crime, uh, mentally ill or suicidal subject. And like I said, and I'll say it all the time, I'm not qualified to tell you what mentally ill is or what mental health issues. So I like to, in the area of use of force, I like to clarify it as incapacitated individuals. Because incapacitation is very important to the analysis of use of force. If the individual is incapacitated and they're not able to make good decisions and therefore uh, may not be reacting to the stimuli provided by the officers. Um, we do know that in non-criminal scenarios, uh, due diligence is required, that officers must educate their family. Uh, we might have red flag laws in some states, uh, which is one of the things that I say and I will continue to say in, in this, if you want to really bring this down to its simplest form, is 
don't make promises you can't keep, right? We'll get into that a little bit, but don't make promises you can't keep and don't create reliance. That's that's the key. And so as we move forward, instances where there's no crime, such as service calls for mentally ill or suicidal individuals, requiring officers to exercise due diligence, educate the family, and be aware of related laws. Now, on the other side, we have criminal. And we know that individuals that are that are criminal in nature, and we still have some due diligence as necessary. We have officers are obligated to prevent an individual from carrying out suicide in the area of the criminal threats. However, when threats are made, it becomes a criminal matter. However, officers are not legally obligated to prevent an individual from carrying out self-harm through due diligence remains a priority. So what we're going to talk about in this area is the public duty doctrine and how suicide, and that's the main topic, individuals committing harm to themselves is not a duty of care for law enforcement. Moral versus legal discussion, because I think the one thing that we all recognize in here is as law enforcement officers, you all have a moral duty of care to assist people and you really want in your job to to prevent suicide from an individual. But where the moral and legal duty intersect is what we're going to talk about. So one of the things that I want to do in this segment is go over some of the case law, specifically related to public duty doctrine. And historically, there are several landmark cases that deal with defining the boundaries of a duty of care in law enforcement. And so I'm going to give you a brief overview and then I'm going to get into each of them specifically. The first is Selt versus Maryland is an 1855 Supreme Court decision would emphasize that the duty of police agencies is a general public and not to specific individuals unless a particular relationship exists. Number two is Warren versus District of Columbia, which is a D.C. case out of 1981, which clarified that while there's a moral duty to serve and protect, it doesn't translate to a legal duty to protect individuals from potential harm. One of the most significant cases is a 1989 Supreme Court case, DeShaney versus Winnebago County, which highlights that the government isn't liable when third parties harm individuals unless a specific relationship with the state exists or the state has created the danger. And the last case we'll talk about is 1998 Adams versus City of Fremont, California Appellate Court, which held that there is no duty to prevent suicidal individuals from harming themselves. Now, there's been a lot of discussion on these topics, a lot of great articles written by individuals across the industry. Should we stay or should we go? The area is dealing with mental health and suicide. So let me break these cases down and give you a little overview. Let's start with South versus Maryland. And again, we're going way back, 1855, United States Supreme Court case which initiated the conversation. It's the first case that we found around this duty, establishing the concept that a duty to all is a duty to no one. Think about that for a second. A duty to all is a duty to no one. Wait, I got to take a drink of my cappuccino because it's a really good one today. So, all right. That just made Kara laugh. That's all that matters. Here we go. All right, the facts in this case. South versus Maryland. In Poto, an individual was kidnapped for four days by certain ill-disposed persons, because that's what they used to say in 1855, ill-disposed persons, until he paid the sum of 
$2,500 for his enlargement. Despite Podol's pleas, the sheriff refused and neglected to protect him. Mr. Podol sued the sheriff and his, his deputies in the name of the state of Maryland and on the sheriff's bond faithfully to perform his duties. This case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court reversed the judgment upon a jury verdict for the plaintiff on the Circuit Court of the United States of the District of Maryland. In this case, Justice Greer in 1855 stated for the court, it is undisputed principle of the common law that for a breach of a public duty, an officer is punishable by indictment, but where he acts ministerially and is bound to render certain services to individuals for a compensation or fee in salary, he is liable for the acts of misfeasance or nonfeasance to the party who is injured by them. In that case, the plaintiff, which was kidnapped and held for ransom, contended that the sheriff knew about the incident but neglected to protect and defend him. The court noted that the plaintiff did not allege the sheriff breached the duty in which the sheriff was personally interested, such as an execution of a writ, but instead the plaintiff alleged that the sheriff neglected to, quote, preserve the public peace, end quote. The court emphasized that the sheriff's alleged failure to preserve the public peace was a public duty for neglect of which he is amendable to the public and punishable by indictment only. The Supreme Court reasoned that such an interpretation was consistent with precedent as, quote, no instance could be found where a civil action was sustained against the sheriff for his default or misbehavior as conservator of the peace by those who have suffered injury to their property or persons through the violence of mobs, riots, or insurrections, end quote. The Supreme Court explained that the sheriff owed no duty to the plaintiff because the individual plaintiff's rights were not restrained or hindered by the malicious act of the sheriff. The Supreme Court held that the plaintiff had failed the state of cause of action against the sheriff, where it was alleged that plaintiff had been held by certain evildoers, love that, for four days and until he paid a ransom of $2,500. While the sheriff stood idly by and failed to enforce the peace of the state of Maryland, the court held that the plaintiff had alleged no specific individual right withheld by the sheriff, nor had the sheriff been charged with any misfeasance or nonfeasance in his ministerial capacity in the execution of any process in which the plaintiff was concerned. The court stated this, the powers and duties of conservator of the peace exercised by the sheriff are not strictly judicial, but he may be said to act as the chief magistrate of his county, wielding the executive power for the preservation of the public peace. It is a public duty for neglect of which he is amendable to the public and punishable by indictment only. The Supreme Court noted the sheriff being present, the plaintiff Pottle applied to him for protection and requested him to keep the peace of the state of Maryland. He then said the sheriff having power and authority to do so, that the sheriff neglected and refused to protect and defend the plaintiff and to keep the peace, wherefore it is charged. The sheriff did not well and truly execute the performance of the duties required of him by the law of said state. 
it assumed as postulate that every breach or neglect of a public duty subjects the officer to a civil suit by any individual who, in consequence thereof, has suffered loss or injury because he has not executed the performance of all the duties required of and imposed on him by the laws of the state. So, all that very fancy 1855 legislation and 1855 legal holding really came down to that the Supreme Court decided that the sheriff was not personally liable to pottle. It held that the sheriff's duty to preserve public peace did not extend to civil liability for damages brought by an individual who suffered harm due to the sheriff's inaction. Well, this area dealt with, this first case dealt with very specific applications, public versus ministerial duties, the nature of the sheriff's duties, the precedents and legal interpretations, implications of holding police officers accountable, and the limitations of civil redress, which led to Warren versus District of Columbia. Built off the principles established in South versus Maryland, the court's decision in 1981 in the case of Warren versus the District of Columbia reinforced the idea that law enforcement's general duty to the public to act reasonably does not equate to a legal obligation to individual citizens. In this case, upon notice that an intruder had entered their boarding house, three women called police during the intrusion. The police arrived at the home, but the officers left when no one answered the door. Now, let me get very much more detailed on this application. So, there was a boarding house. An individual entered the boarding house and took a female hostage, where for a period of time, he sexually assaulted and injured her. Other women in the house hid from the, in the intruder. And at some point, they were able to access and call law enforcement to identify that there was an intruder in the house. Law enforcement officers responded to the house in the District of Columbia and as identified the facts of this case, they drove by the house, they drove around the house, they even at one point knocked on the door of the house and nobody answered. Now, interestingly, that the ladies that had called police had made their way out to a rooftop where they were hiding from the intruders and when the officers arrived, they tried to make themselves known which truly only made themselves known to the intruders, and the intruders then added them to their victim list and sexually assaulted them and sodomized them for a period of 10 to 12 hours before they were able to break away and get access to law enforcement. In this case, the ladies turned around and sued law enforcement, alleging that they had not done their job of protecting the ladies when they called 911, and the court came back in a holding and said this. Because the plaintiffs had no special relationship with the police department, there was no duty upon the police officers working for the department to provide protective services to the women. In this case, no special relationship between the women and the officers had been established. Absent the existence of a special relationship, no specific legal duty exists. So what's the takeaway from this case? As a extension of the first 1855 Supreme Court case, South versus Maryland. In Warren versus the District of Columbia, 
The court emphasized that the duty to offer public services is to the collective public and not to distinct individuals, which often shields the police from potential liabilities. The duty is that of the public. One of the most significant cases in the area of duty of care came next. In 1989, in a Supreme Court case called DeShaney versus Winnebago County, and this is a case that I deal with often in the area of tactical operator operations, because this really talks about the area of what is the decision. In fact, the best way to put it is this. The Supreme Court in 1989 tackled a critical question. When is the state, or by extension, a law enforcement agency, responsible for harm caused by a third party. Now we're really starting to get into the issues that are focused here, right? Issues that we've seen. Now, so let's let's break this down in this situation. This case is not a law enforcement case, but it's a case where a young boy was living with his father and the father's second wife reported potential abuse to the Department of Social Services. Although DSS initially took the child into protective custody after an event, they returned him to his father, citing insufficient evidence for ongoing state involvement. The DSS made several attempts to check on the boy, but the father consistently provided reasons for their inability to see him, like the child was being unwell. The situation took a dark turn when the boy was later hospitalized after a severe beating from his father which left him in a coma. The child's mother turned around and sued the Department of Social Services, stating that they failed to protect her son. A critical factor was that during the incident, the boy was under his father's care, not DSS's custody. For law enforcement officers, the Supreme Court's verdict in this case is essential. The court held that the state, and by extension, agencies like the Department of Social Services, are not automatically responsible for protecting citizens from harm caused by third party. Private individuals, unless there is a special relationship that exists or if the state played a role in creating the risk. Now, the key thing here that we look at in this area is we're looking at the aspect of the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. I don't want to lose you here because that gets really legal in the aspect, but what they did talk about is nothing in the language of the due process clause itself requires the state to protect the life, liberty, and property of its citizens against invasion by private actors. Rather, the due process clause limits a state's power to deprive individuals of life, liberty, and property without the due process of law. The language of this clause cannot fairly be extended to impose an affirmative obligation on the state to ensure that those interests do not come to harm through other means. The Due Process Clause functions solely to protect individuals from abuses of power by the government rather than protecting individuals from each other. Consistent with these principles, the Court's prior jurisprudence recognizes that the Due Process Clause generally confers no affirmative right to governmental aid, even when such aid might be necessary to secure life, liberty, or property interests of which the government itself could not deprive individuals. It follows from this that the state 
cannot be held liable under the clause for injuries that could have been avoided had it chosen to provide them. So what does all this mean? Ultimately, a state, or in our context, a police officer's failure to protect an individual against private violence does not constitute a violation of the Due Process Clause. Now, there is an exception. The exception to this general rule is the Eighth Amendment's protection against cruel and unusual punishment. The state is required to provide medical care to inmates because a state detainee detains inmates against their will, thus a state's affirmative duty to act in this limited instance arises from the limitations which the state imposes on an inmate's ability to act on his own behalf. In this case, Winnebago had no affirmative duty to provide medical care to DeShaney. Additionally, DeShaney did not fall under the limited exception recognized in the case of prison inmates because DeShaney was in the custody of his father, not the state. The state's failure to protect him from his father's violence does not amount to a constitutional violation of his substantive due process rights. Accordingly, Winnebago did not violate DeShaney's rights, and the decisions of the lower court are affirmed. This leads us to, to identify that there are two exceptions to the public duty doctrine. The first one is the state special relationship, and that is what we talked about. Incarcerated, institutionalized, or other restraint of personal liberty. In that situation, we have a duty to protect them. The one that we're going to talk about, though, is called state-created danger exception, in which the state officials have a duty to protect individuals when their actions create or exacerbate harm. Now, we know that there, and I talked about in the first case, that the shooting in Parkland, Florida, at Major East Stoneman Douglas School. The case that came from that is 11th Circuit Court of Appeals case called Hernandez versus Peterson. In this case was dismissed. The lawsuit was dismissed against the sheriff deputies from Parkland. The plaintiff in this case could only allege a substantive due process claim in two situations. First, where the person was in government's custody or second, where the government's official conduct is arbitrary or shocks the conscience. Now, this is important when it comes down to what is our duty of care in active shooter situations. So let me review with you what the court found in reviewing the liability associated with Deputy Peterson in the Parkland, Florida shooting. And we talked about it in the first podcast on duty of care. In the prior podcast, we talked about the fact that when the case came for criminal litigation as to the seven counts of child abuse against Deputy Peterson, that the court exonerated him on all counts of criminal charges against him, which led to the conversation of what is the duty of care. In analyzing whether or not the deputy had a civil liability and not responding into the school uh, in protecting the rights of the children, the court held that the children were not in police custody, that it's well established that school children are not in a custodial relationship with the state. A custodial relationship exists only if the government places limitations upon individuals' ability to act on his own behalf. 
and that are similar in kind to incarceration or other involuntary confinement. Most of the time, there are no custodial relationships in the public school system, even if officials are aware of potential dangers or have expressed an intent to provide aid on school grounds. Let's go to the second test, which is whether the government official's conduct is arbitrary or shocks the conscience. An official's conduct will shock the conscience only when it stems from a purpose to cause harm, such as the plaintiff can only sue if they can show the government agent purposefully caused harm, intent, or the agent cannot be sued. So let's go to our final case today. And that is a 1998 case called Adams versus the city of Fremont. And you'll see this in a lot of articles. The, one of the significant articles that you can Google is, uh, should I stay or should I go? And the key part of building this history of duty of care really comes to a head in dealing with this 1998 Adams versus the city of Fremont, California appellate court. This 1998 case brought clarification to the duty owed by law enforcement officers when responding to an individual contemplating self-harm, i.e. committing suicide. What do we know? A person with suicidal tendencies and armed with a gun found himself in a standoff with police. The individual had missed the chaos, shot himself before he was shot by officers who mistakenly believed that the individual was shooting at them. The court considered the city's liability for not preventing the death of an armed suicidal person during a police standoff. Going through the history of this case and dealing with what we knew, the incident occurred in April of 1993. The individual, Mr. Adams, was a nurse. He had a history of depression, suicidal tendencies, and alcohol-related aggression. He owned a shotgun and a handgun. And the night of the incident, there was tension at a family dinner. He consumed alcohol. He argued with his wife and became aggressive at home. The friends found him with a firearm in a dark room after a disturbance. A gunshot was heard. They fled and they sought the help of police. Officers who responded, including a supervisor's, found the plaintiff Patrick armed in the backyard, attempted negotiations, and ultimately shot him after he fired a gun. It was is determined after the investigation that Patrick's death was from bullet wounds, including a self-inflicted one, which was clarified during the course of the investigation. There was an initial lawsuit that was brought wrongful death and negligent infliction of emotional distress following the fatal injury during the police encounter. In the initial verdict at the underlying issue, the jury awarded approximately $4 million to Adams' family. The municipality appealed, and the appellate argument claimed no duty of care owed to Patrick or his family and asserted immunity from liability under Government Code Section 820.2. The court, in its decision, reversed the trial court's judgment, ruled that the police officers have no legal duty in tort law in scenarios involving a person threatening suicide with a firearm. The trial court directed to enter judgment in favor of the appellants, so on the, on the side of law enforcement. The legal analysis here 
was that the the jury's finding in the lower case questioned due to lack of substantial evidence. There was an issue of by, bystander liability. In the final ruling, based on the absence of a legal dual duty under tort law for police in suicidal threat applications. Now, what comes to be more of an issue here in its application is the concept that when it comes to a duty of care, we have seen multiple cases, and specifically the DeShaney case from 1989. The duty of care is specific to its application. So before we get into some of these level cases, the concept that we want to talk about is a state-created danger. The best advice that I can give you is don't make statements that might not be true and don't make promises that you can't keep. And the courts across the country have held that when it comes to causing a duty of care or state-created danger, it is your conversations and applications that do so. And, and when it comes to suicide and one of the general issues that led to dealing with reducing tactical operations for individuals holding themselves hostage, the question that has been asked over and over again is, do officers have a duty to prevent suicide? Well, in the Adams case, the judge wrote, law enforcement will soon learn enough that the sins of omission are generally not actionable. Even more direct, the caution that sins of omission don't create liability is one court's explicit rejection of the notion that officers have a duty to prevent a suicide. Now, here's where things get a little concerning in the law enforcement operation. What the court says in evaluating do officers have a duty to prevent suicide, the question would come back and say, is that a moral duty or a legal duty? And one of the things that we're clarifying here is that the court has said Officers don't have a legal duty to attempt to prevent suicide. That does not mean they will not take on a moral duty to do that. Where, the, where officers need to be well aware of the challenge that they're faced with is that when it comes to enforcing a moral duty, the court has said once officers decide to intervene, they may be held liable for their tactical decisions. One more time, you need to hear that. Once officers decide to intervene based on a moral duty of care, they may be held liable for tactical decisions, which means if they don't follow their training in the tactical application, they can be found liable for that failure, which is concerning in multiple levels, very concerning because of the application of how this goes to the next level. When we deal with this area I want to remind you of what the court said in Adams versus City of Fremont, where the holding of the court said, the police officers responding to a crisis involving a person threatening suicide with a loaded firearm have no legal duty under tort law that will expose them to liability if their conduct fails to prevent the threatened suicide from being carried out. Now, there's not too many things I can say in a podcast that I... that to explain this any further, because the challenge is this is not the type of stuff that society wants to hear, right? Society doesn't want to hear that we are not going to do everything in our power to prevent someone from committing a suicide. But what the law says is that you don't have a legal duty to intervene. But if you choose to intervene, your tactical applications, your tactical decisions 
may cause you liability, which causes us severe confliction between our moral and our legal duty. Do we want to help the individual who's committing suicide? And the answer is yes. I believe that 100%. But the challenge is putting ourselves in a situation where that suicidal individual uses that for uh, and, and escalates it to a point where deadly force is used. And there's no easier way to say it except the individual rises to a level where we kill him for him. And that's the challenge that we're faced with. That's the issue on the table that we're trying to avoid. To wrap this up as we bring this part to a conclusion, and we'll be back with another segment, but to bring this part to a conclusion, the key is understanding legal versus moral duty of care, understanding suspect versus subject, and understanding that it's okay in to want to prevent someone from harming themselves. However, the challenge that we're faced with is the issues associated with the if it goes sideways, then our tactical decisions, such as uh, you know going up on the subject or not taking cover or distance or concealment, not using less lethal application, those tap those tactical decisions can be used against us in the evaluation of whether or not there was a violation of a duty of care by you as the officer. All right, I know that was a hard one. A lot of detailed information. You might have to listen to that a second time just to get that all in. But I appreciate the fact that you're really interested in learning more about this because I do think that it's coming to a, a head and we have to really get our mind around what our legal duty is versus what our moral duty is in, in dealing with the situation, dealing with specifically individuals who are incapacitated and are suffering from some type of mental harm. So as I wrap this up today and thank Kara for running the board on this situation, I want to just remind you, help those who need your help, uh, protect those who need your protection, and most importantly, keep yourself and others safe. Thank you. The Guardian Mindset Podcast is sponsored by the DLG Learning Center. You can find us at www.dlglearningcenter.com. On the Learning Center, you can find an extensive library of articles, webinars, and online training. Listen, if you find the podcast informative, I'd recommend checking out our weekly Path of the Guardian video training and our monthly supervisory continued education program. These programs can be purchased by single users or department-wide. And if you want easy access to articles and information, please download the Daigle Law Group app through either your Apple App Store or your Google App Store. And remember, help those who need your help, protect those who need your protection, and most importantly, keep yourself and others safe. Thank you.